Welcome to America's Land Auctioneer. I'm glad you've joined us today. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer, America's Land Auctioneer. I have a couple of great guests with me today. Abby Wick, an associate professor and soil scientist with North Dakota State University. Good morning. How are you doing, Abby? I'm great. How are you? Going good. Thank you. And Steve Link, the broker for Pfeiffer's Auction and Realty. How are you doing, Steve? Uh, I'm happy to be here. Good. I'm glad you guys have both joined us. Today, we're going to have a jam-packed show because we're going to talk about farmland and all that it takes to have really good farmland. And I guess, Steve, to start it off, the first question I got for you this morning is, and I know, well, you're the second best salesman at Pfeiffer's, as I understand exactly. it, right? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not sure who the first best salesman is, but you're the second best salesman. But when people call you and want to buy land, what is it they ask you first and foremost? Well, there's a number of questions. Number one, what's the price of that land? That's the first question they ask. Number two is typically, what are the soils? What's, what's the makeup of the land? What, what, why, what? where does the value come from that land and why why should i be interested in buying it and so soils is one of the top questions that that i get asked and i don't know about you but i get accused of having a really short attention span do you get accused yeah, hardly, of that, hardly, hardly ever hardly ever and so i don't know who started this but there's a really nice index that they've made for us with the short attention spans called the soil productivity index and so we use the soil productivity index religiously through our sales material for both buyers and sellers and our land managers um, throughout throughout the company. Soil Productivity Index is an index from zero to 100. It was started through NRCS and that's who it keeps it up now. And Abby, you can chime in if you have any other background on this, but NRCS started this, uh, this index and we use it a lot. We use it for sales, we use it for appraisers, appraisals, we use it for our land managers. In fact, the state of North Dakota and the state of South Dakota use it for their taxing. That's how they tax real estate in those in those states based on the productivity. So, soil productivity index is from is rated from zero to one hundred. It's based on how well hard winter red wheat grows on the land, on non-irrigated land. And so, the better the rating is, the better wheat is supposed to grow on that. So, is that is that the Bible that we all use? No, it's not the Bible, but it is a great indicator on how good that soil is when we're when we're selling it. How how and maybe Abby wants to chime in here too, but how accurate are those? Well, obviously they have a list of all the different soil types. So you have a description of all the soil types. They've been identified as either class two, three, four, or five soils. And then they do evaluation on the productivity soil, then they do a comparison on the productivity against all the other soils within that county, correct? Correct. That's how yep. they do that. So how accurate in today's world are these? Because I know it goes way back to the old Soil Conservation Service and now NRCS. How accurate are those indexing numbers? Well, they, they try and keep them up. And I argue on some parcels that we're selling, I argue that they're high. I argue that they're low. And some I think they're accurate. And then the other thing I think Abby can touch on, 
a lot more than I can is it how people actually treat that soil and what they do with it. I think is, you know, if there's more drainage on it, if there's different cover crops to use on that, they can really affect the productivity of that. Abby, am I correct on that? Yeah, I, I think there's, you know, with productivity index, you're right. It was kind of a blanket kind of assessment, you know, by soil type. So if I'm standing here in the Red River Valley, some people think, you know, that you'd have all the same soil type, right? Well, I can spread my arms out and I can touch two different soil types within the span of my arms. And so, so those soils may have a different productivity rate depending on how much clay is in them or how well they drain or how much organic matter they have in them. Um, and that's kind of, like you said, that's how they assess it. That's how they've valued the land. And, and for the most part, I mean, you know, it's based on soil series and soil types. So for the most part, it is correct. But then we're managing the top part of that soil, which makes it tricky for really understanding it. And then we've got erosion and other things that have kind of played in that have affected that, that PI. You know, another interesting thing that Abby just brought up too, Steve, and I know at Pifers you do a lot of this, and before we get too far in the program, I know they can reach you at info at com. You can go to Pifers' website. You can call 877-700-4099 to get a hold of Steve. Uh, you probably don't want to give out your cell number. You'll have all kinds of people calling you, but they can go to info at com and email you. But another good point that Abby brought up that I think is kind of interesting, and whether it's in the Red River Valley or anywhere in farm country, you can have an 80-acre piece within the same section, and the soil types are so different than another 80 right next to it even. Right, Abby? Oh, absolutely. I was, I was just visiting with a farmer the other day, and we looked at a soil map of one of his fields, and, you know, he's got all the different colors on it, the red and the green and the blue and whatever for the soil types, and it looked like a bag of Skittles had just been thrown <laughs> across the table. And so he must have been managing a dozen different soil types within that that quarter section, and it was, it was kind of amazing how his – how he has to manage that in a way for his fertility, for all those different aspects. So it's, it's, they're really quite variable. You know, it's, it's pretty rare, I think. And we look at a lot of soil maps every day at Pfeiffer's. We look at these maps, whether we're representing buyers or working with, with sellers or whatever it might be. And you're pretty fortunate if you only have one or two soil types, other than maybe the slope of the soil or whatever, the contour of the land on a quarter of land or a section. But because there are, like Abby said, I, I, that's a good line. I'm going to start using that. It looks like a looks like a bag of Skittles or whatever. But I've seen quarters of land where you have 30 different soil types, and that's if you're farming by the foot, that's hard. It is hard because those farmers are managing. They they want a uniform piece, right? I mean, when people look at soils, managing something that's uniform is easier to manage. But when you have all those different variables and those different soil types, it certainly uh, makes things a little bit more challenging. But uh, but it's part of the soils, and it's it's a great thing to see. And as a soil scientist, I love it. I love seeing a lot of variability. And you know what else is fortunate is the fact that we have computer programs that show us that and make those colors. Because I'm old enough to remember when I started in this business, I had to grab those old books that have for oh. each county and find that map and go back and write down the, the little, little numbers and the letters and go back and find that corresponding soils. And if I had never heard of that soil... It really didn't mean anything to me. And so these programs that they have that we use and utilize are just fantastic and help us give that snapshot of that of that property. Folks, you're listening to America's Land Auction here. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer with Pfeiffer's Auction Realty and Pfeiffer's Land Management. Abby Wick uh, with the North Dakota State University Extension Service, soil scientist and associate professor is with us today. And Steve Link, the broker at Pfeiffer's Auction and Realty and Pfeiffer's Land Management, joining us. You can email us at info at Pfeiffer's.com or go to Pfeiffer's website. Today we're talking about really the basics of where every piece of land, kind of it all starts or originates. 
And we're talking about soil productivity, the different types of soil, the variations of soils within a quarter of land to another, even within a section. But, you know, Abby, the first question that I have for you, and I know a lot of listeners are, are probably wondering more about this. As a soil scientist, are you at all concerned about overall soil health in agricultural country country throughout well just throughout mostly where we're at in the midwest uh you know i i think i think we can always do better right i think as as we're managing land we can always do better um but i also know that that north dakota is a state in this region in general i mean when we look back 40 some years uh there was the north dakota manitoba association of zero till farmers right they were no-till farmers and you know they talk about where does that where did those practices start and where did these conservation efforts start and a lot of them started here in our region so uh, so we're really fortunate in the western part of North Dakota. You know, I, I have a hard time finding a field that's been tilled. You know, I mean, there's there's the rotations, there's no till, the soil is protected. Um, in the east, you know, we're we're getting there. We're working really hard, and and each time I drive, you know, from here across the state, I see new fields that are being managed in a different way, and I'm I, I have a lot of hope for us. I think I think it's pretty exciting, and we've seen some major changes in, in practices and implementation of things that like cover crops or other soil health practices too. And uh, we'll we'll talk about uh, crop rotation here in a little bit, but that obviously comes into play too. But yeah, I've noticed too at you know Pfeiffer's equipment auctions over the last twenty years. You know, we don't sell any of the old mallboard plows anymore. I mean, those are a thing of the past. I mean, now you have all different types of tillage equipment. Yeah, I think that's great. I think, you know, I think farmers are really seeing their, their equipment when they can till the land, when when it's suitable. Can they not do a fall tillage pass and leave that soil protected over the winter and just do a spring pass before planting? Or, you know, they're 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 coming up with new ways and they're trying it on a small piece of land and then they're taking it to their whole farm, what they learn. You know, Steve, getting back to the indexing thing that we talked about earlier, too, is, uh, you know, buyers have become conditioned to talk about that or ask that question you know we've sold land to a lot of different people throughout the country at pifers and i i always remember uh about 12 15 years ago we were working with a doctor in arizona and this doctor she was not very experienced in buying land in fact she'd never bought land before and and within that year she had bought a small piece of land from us and then over the course of the next four or five years she bought a lot of land from us but by the time she was buying her second or third piece, her first question was, what's the soil productivity index? What are the different soil types? And, you know, obviously it's not just the indexing number either. It's really kind of what is the soil type because the soil type then will determine whether or not you can plant a variety of different crops or either, whether it's a specific to just maybe a limited number of crops. Yep, yep. And, and you touched on a few things there, and it's an indication of what you can grow on there. Um, it, 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 it's really a level that they've, that they have, uh, conditioned to, to growing wheat within the county. And so you can't necessarily take that index and compare it to Western North Dakota versus Eastern North Dakota, but you can tell if it's higher than 70 or 80 in, in Cass County, it's something that you should really consider looking at. If it's uh, lower than that, then you have to talk to Abby and find out ways to fix it and ways to make that productive, non-productive ground more productive. You know, we're going to talk about that with Abby when we come back from the break. And actually, we're going to be talking about the basic principles to improve soil health when we come back from this break. Folks, you're listening to America's Land Auctioneer. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer, America's Land Auctioneer. Abby Wick with NDSU is with us, the Extension Service. She's an associate professor and soil scientist. And Steve Link, the broker at Pfeiffer's Auction and Realty and Pfeiffer's Land Management. We'll be back right after this break. 
$1,000 bid, $2,000 where, $1,750 here now do sold your way for $1,750. Welcome back to America's Land Auctioneer. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer, America's Land Auctioneer, and also with Pfeiffer's Auction and Realty and Pfeiffer's Land Management. With me today is Abby Wick, the Associate Professor and Soil Scientist with the Extension Service at North Dakota State University. You know, it's hard for a UND guy to keep plugging NDSU during this whole show, but I have to I do bet. it. <laughs> I bet. I'm glad you're here today, Abby. Thank you for being with us. And Steve Link, the broker with Pfeiffer's Auction Realty and Pfeiffer's Land Management. I always tell Steve, you know, you got a, you got a great gig. You're the second best salesman over at Piper's, right, Steve? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> like Andy Murnock, the second best auctioneer in America, Exactly. Right? We're still trying to figure out who the best one is, right? <laughs> but anyhow, thank you both for being here. Today we're talking about soil productivity and soil health and how important it is to not only the farmers and ranchers, but let's say if you're a recreationalist or whatever and you're, you're if you're a hunter and you want to – plant food plots or whatever it might be. But but really, it all comes really right down to how good is the soil. We have a saying at Pfeiffer's, there's no future in poor or marginal land, right, Steve? Yeah, that's right. We say that often. So if you are going to buy land, whether it's for crop production, corn, soybeans, canola, whatever, or for grazing livestock, buy good land because there obviously is a future in good land. But, you know, a lot of people, they buy land for different reasons. Some buy it for economic return. Some buy it because they're in the farming and ranching business. Some buy it as an investment. Some buy it for hunting or whatever. But really, no matter what you buy it for, you know, we all are stewards of the land. It's important that we take care of this land, to do the very best that we can. But, again, getting back to Abby here a little bit, I just want to ask you, what are the basic principles you know, in, in your profession that you feel are really maybe three or four or whatever that, that you would apply to improve soil health? Well, you know, that's a great question. There, There's all kinds of things online that you can find about the principles of soil health. And, and to me, it's really, you know, how can you reduce tillage? Um, because we know that every time you pull a tillage piece of equipment through the soil, that it, it disturbs the, the soil, it turns it upside down, it breaks apart this great structure that we have that, that helps hold up equipment. Um, so that's one. And, and whether whether that's that you completely back off tillage into no-till or you use strip till or you use vertical till or you do a, a spring tillage pass and not a fall one, uh, there's all kinds of variations of it. So so reducing tillage disturbance or soil disturbance is probably the first uh, that I go to. But then uh, diversifying crop rotations. And we know that, you know, the farmers are making decisions on the markets and things like that. They can only grow certain crops that are going to make them money. But they can diversify their rotations by adding in a cover crop. And that's where they can they can put a cover crop into corn. They can plant soybean into a living cereal rye um, cover crop. There are all kinds of ways that they can do that to bring some of that diversity back into their system. Um, and then, of course, a lot of people talk about grazing as being a really important part of it, too, if you have livestock and, and, and want to graze a cover crop or a field or, or a perennial that, um, that that can really bring some, some healthy soils into that system. You know, you talked about crop rotation and and I got a couple questions on that for you because I've always kind of wondered okay for instance well what do I plant obviously and when do I plant it but can I plant corn on corn if I do have some sort of cover crop in there or is that unhealthy and I know you're probably going to get into the pest control weed control and all that right so I mean can you do that I mean is that or is that not a good practice 
Um, I, I think you could do that. It would be better, like you said, if you if you plant a cover crop in there and you try to diversify it just a little bit, just for those weed management issues and and things like I mean, we know Goss's wilt is a is a big issue in corn, and so you can lose like forty percent of your production in corn if you get Goss's wilt, and that and that comes about by having you know the bacteria on the on the residue, and that's probably way too specific for yeah. what we need to talk about, but. Um, but I think you can do that. But but like you mentioned earlier, the different soil types lend themselves to different crops. Sandier soils are great for peas and early season crops and the higher clay soils can do, you know, corn really well. And so, you know, it's kind of finding what those soils want you to plant on them. That that's really the, the best way to go about it. So like on corn, for instance, and I know it can be a little trickier to plant cover crop of corn. At what stage would a producer want to put cover crop into the corn? It, Tassel stage or later? Or? There's multiple options, which is great. So um, a lot of farmers I'm working with, they're they're kind of developing these interseeding pieces of equipment. So they're modifying some kind of toolbar that they have, and they're making it so they can interseed at side dress. So five to eight leaf corn. And then they're seeding it into the ground for a really good establishment. Um, but then there's also, you can fly it on at tasseling, and, and that's a good option for a lot of people too. So, so there's plenty of time and plenty of, of ways to do it. I know a lot of... Uh, potato growers what they'll do is before they start picking or lifting their potatoes they'll actually use an airplane and seed barley or rye or whatever it might be and then as they're lifting or picking the potatoes that seed will get mixed into the soil so that probably is another good practice i would assume yeah i think so with that and people are doing that same with sugar beets you know they'll fly on a cover crop and hopefully it catches if it doesn't they can always do it on the the pre-lift area so there's lots of different ways to make the system work for each farmer. Steve, when you're uh, when you're selling land or you know representing a seller and you got buyers calling, I would imagine you have a lot of questions as far as crop rotation. What what has the farmer been planning on? That? Absolutely, yeah. They ask about what what they've been planting on. If I have any yield history on that. If uh, it's it's really a luxury when our land management crew is actually managing the property because then they'll have that information readily available for us. So we track that down for, uh, for for the different tracks we're selling. And I want to ask Abby, too, do you think this is a good strategy? So for a buyer-grower, a grower, a buyer that's, that's going to be the farmer on it, maybe he doesn't have to buy the best quarter in the, in, in, the, in the township. Maybe he can buy something a little bit more marginal and use some of your practices and, and, and have it be a sneaky good buy for him. Does that, does that sound like a good plan? I think it could be, especially if they know the land history, right? If they're, if there's somebody in the, in the area that knows how that piece has been managed, they kind of know the issues. They've, they watch the crop that's been growing on it, know where it's productive or not. Um, then I think there's some things they can do. It's, it, you know, maybe even they start off with like, say they purchase a piece of land and they come in that fall and they seed a cover crop, you know, maybe they seed cereal rye and it overwinters and the next spring they plant soybeans into it as their first crop. So there are things that they can kind of do when they, when they gain purchase, you know, or possession of that land that maybe could help them, um, bring it into a higher productivity the next year when they're, when they're really going to be farming it. So maybe Kevin, we're gonna have to change our tagline that uh, there's no future in, uh, in 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 poor land, but maybe we'll have to change that a little bit so then say that there's uh, there's hope. There's hope for poor land. Absolutely, upside. There's upside. upside. There's upside in the margin of land to make it a little bit better. Right? Yep. Yeah. There you go. Oh, well, how would okay? That's a good question that Steve brought up. But how about improving salinity or or overcoming that challenge? That's a major challenge, isn't it? That's a major challenge. And some land, to be honest, is not meant to be farmed. You know, I mean, when it's when it's white and it's salty, or there's high sodium salts in that system, um, those are incredibly challenging soils. And so people really they they want to look at those soil maps and see what 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 they're getting right and and they should 
know a little bit of the history on the salinity because that can be really challenging. Now, if like you're saying, the marginal land where it's just kind of starting to see maybe a yield decline in soybeans or something because of the salts, you can bring that back. But but it's you know stuff that's really salty that's just grown weeds or not weeds at all, and it's just salt. Uh, that that's tough to. That's where I think you'd say you want the best farmland because that's the future. <laughs> I, I remember a couple of years back, there were some seed companies that were experimenting with uh, alfalfa and salinity. And I don't know how far those trials have come along or if it's improved it at all or not. Yeah, there there was some you know talk about saltar and alfalfa. And, and that's still an expensive seed. I mean, it's it still costs a lot of money to get that seed in the ground. So um, what I recommend to farmers are, you know, is, is use barley. Barley is one of the most salt tolerant crops that we have, and it's cheap, so they can put that out first, kind of see how it does, where the barley's doing okay, maybe then plant some of that salt tolerant alfalfa in there and, and try to really bring that land around. But um, but use the barley first because it's cheaper. Steve, and, I need, oh, go ahead. And then, and Kevin, I don't know if you're going to have some of the drain tile people come in and talk about that too because they, they, their strategy obviously is to, to drain that, that, that water table down so that the salts go down. And, and I think that with a combination of some of these salt-tolerant crops is a really good strategy how to, how to increase that limiting factor. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, you know, but you have to be careful with tile drainage and, and two, that, that you don't want to tile your worst ground, right? Because it's not going to come back around as quickly as some of your better ground that may be starting to see some of those declines in productivity. Um, but you can certainly stack these practices on top of each other and, and, and improve the ability for that water to get to the tile drainage. Yep. And we are going to be uh, having some experts on the tile uh, drainage systems uh, in future shows and obviously the benefits from all that. But you folks, we're getting ready for a break here. You're listening to America's Land Auctioneer. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer. My guest today, Abby Wick with North Dakota State University, a professor, associate professor and soil scientist, and Steve Link with Pfeiffer's Auction and Realty. You can reach Steve at info at Pfeiffer's.com or go to Pfeiffer's.com website. Again, you're listening to America's Land Auctioneer. We'll be back right after this break. Been dollar here now, 10 bid, 12, the dealing with and here now, what are you gonna do now? I'm gonna be on here now. Hope it five hundred thousand dollar bid. I'm in five hundred in. Welcome back to America's Land Auctioneer. I'm your host, Kevin Pfeiffer, America's Land Auctioneer. Thank you for joining us today. We're talking about soil health and soil productivity today with Steve Link. Steve is the broker at Pfeiffer's Auction and Realty and Pfeiffer's Land Management, and Abby Wick, associate professor and soil scientist with the Extension Service at North Dakota State University. We're going to be talking here in the last couple of segments again about soil health and soil productivity. Steve, I know you sell a lot of land at Pfeiffer's and you know there's quite a crew you got over there. It's always interesting to me that the first question we get when people call the might be an absentee landowner or they may live in North Dakota or Minnesota or South Dakota. And the first question they ask is without telling you anything else is what's my land worth? Exactly. And you're like, wow, that's a loaded question because as we referenced early and, and Abby brought it up, I thought it was a good point. You could have one quarter or an 80 within the same section and it could have half the value or twice the value as another 80 or quarter within that section. So really it all comes down to what is the productivity of that soil, not necessarily the indexing, but the productivity and the diversity of that soil. 
Yeah, and, and usually they want to get clarified first that we have an NDSU background. You know, that's one of the, that's that's one of the top questions that they ask. <laughs> but then after that, you know, Kevin, that, by the way, why do you keep surrounding yourself with the NDSU people? If, well, you know, I just trying to get you guys to come over that inferiority complex <laughs> that you have, you know. So, hey, you know, UND started a sustainable agricultural course. Are they Did really? You? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's uh, pretty cool, I think. And they're doing a nice job with their drone technology up there. That's so that's, true. That's, been, that's been fun to watch. Yeah. And, and and we're utilizing that a lot in our marketing material and yeah. and I think it I think that also has, plays in with some of the soil health and and when you can see those aerial photos and see exactly what's going on because that is one thing I do talk about when buyers are asking me questions about a particular property is I've only seen this typically for six months or or twelve months or even a month or even a day or a week you know when when they're asking me questions on it so I don't have that history. But I can look back at the soils. I can look back at old aerial photos and really get a feel for what that is. And so I can answer those questions about what's my land worth and give them a range of what I think it's worth. And But I'm going to have questions for them. I'm going to ask them what kind of rents they've been getting. I'm going to ask them um, if they've done any improvements on, this, on, on the drainage, if they've done any other soil health improvements on it. So those are the questions I'm, I'm going to ask. Well, and those are all very important questions to be asking them and I'm, I'm sure a lot of absentee landowners probably don't have the knowledge base so they might not even have the answers to all of them but again you got a lot of resources that you can pull off of the internet or you can go to surety mapping or whatever and get all the indexing the fsa maps so the question i have for you in regard to those maps because i've seen this in my career too you could pull a soil productivity map from 2020 but it looks different than it did in 2017. Have you noticed that? Yeah, they'll do. They'll go through different regions and they'll update them. And I know Abby knows some of the soil mappers. Is that what you call them? The soil mappers that, yeah. that, that update some of those productivity indexes and, and, and those maps in those, those, those areas. And uh, so you have to make sure that, that what the map you're looking at is the most accurate that, that, that you have available to you. Yeah, that's really important because one of the things that we we found was I think it was a couple of years ago that they had said, oh, we've mapped every soil in the United States. We've completed the job. And then they're remapping now, which I think is a really good thing because because soils change over time, how they're managed. I mean, the, even some of these salts that we were talking about earlier, they they change as they move through the profile. Yep. I'm certainly not what I was 30 years ago. So we have to look at how things change and, and then kind of make some you know different de- decisions then. Yeah, Abby, and I got a quick, quick note for you so kevin was actually a part of the real estate deal when teddy roosevelt built bought the elkhorn ranch right were, were you part of that deal? uh the the year after the I year after you started year. okay all right but we didn't have index numbers back then no we didn't we didn't and actually okay talking about western north dakota this is interesting uh so obviously teddy roosevelt had two ranches he had one north medora uh which i believe was the Elkhorn Ranch, and then he had one south of Medora, which was the Maltese Ranch. And obviously, it, it's rugged country. It's the Badlands. It's it's the buttes and everything. But soil productivity on grazing land is a big deal, and a lot of people overlook that, don't they? I think they do. Sometimes we forget that with grazing land, you know, you, you treat those forages that you're growing just like a cash crop. You fertilize them. You do all those things. You expect the soil to provide nutrients to those forages. And, and so sometimes we, we don't think of it in that way. And, and it's important, like you said, they can be very, very productive. You know, I always remind people that are looking at buying, you know, they want to get into the livestock business or they want to buy gra- grazing land or whatever. But 
you know, before a cattleman is anything else, that cattleman is in the grass business. I mean, they're in the business of having really good grass. I mean, you need, you need the native grasses for the nutrients and all that. And if you're putting tame grasses on there or whatever, you, you obviously, you have to have that. Otherwise you're going to have a difficult time. I think having profitability within whether it's cow calf operation or if you're running yearlings or whatever, but I often see buyers of land, they will not even ask if what's the productivity index or the productivity of any soils on grazing land. That's interesting. I, w- I would think they'd want to because that's what they're feeding their cows, right? That, that's what gets them to gain weight. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, again, I, have you noticed that, Steve? I do, and yeah. you can tell when a buyer is, is educated on that because they'll obviously ask about the fence and, you know, for, is it a four-wire fence? Is it steel posts? And how old is the fence? What's the water availability? But when they really know their know their system, they're going to ask what kind of soils are on that on that ground, on that grazing land. So on native grasses, for instance, and I know we got a lot of listeners out in Western North Dakota through KFYR and, and uh, Tioga and Williston because we're on the air out there. On, on undisturbed native grasses, how can you, without disturbing that soil, how can you improve soil health on native grasses? Oh, boy, that's a great question. I'm not sure I have the answer, but I do know somebody you could talk to. <laughs> I think a lot of a lot of things that I've heard over the years is is the timing of when you when you graze those cattle on there. And so you're not in there the exact same month, exact same week so that those different types of grasses can grow. You know, the warm season, the cool season can be on there. So the rotation. Um, the cross fencing and, and where you put that water. Cell stuff. grazing and, and that grazing. type of thing. Yep. I think that yep. that's really important and, and that can add in my business that can add value to the property when you have that op- opportunity to do that versus a two section fence where you're just going to let the cattle go and and you know that's 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 probably not the best management for that ground and, and there there are a lot of acres in that part of north dakota especially in the badlands where you have that hard pan soil which you really can't do anything with it like you said earlier abby is some soil just was never meant to be farmed and some of it should not be disturbed probably just leave it the way it is right i think so i think grassland sometimes is the best option for it and and just to keep it from eroding and to keep the the water managed in that system and then if you can graze it better yet um but yeah i think some some soil is just not meant to be farmed Folks, you're listening to America's Land Auctioneer. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer. If you want to email some questions or if you want more information on today's show or future or past shows, you can go to pfeiffers.com, go to our website, or you can email us at info at pfeiffers.com. If you want to get a hold of Steve Link, you can call him at 877-700-4099. Or for Abby Wick, you can just go to the NDSU website in the extension service and you could pull up her information and get a hold of Abby. We're also going to be talking a little bit now today about the uh, importance of organic matter in the soil because I have a lot of people that come to me and they say geez you know my neighbor the, the the dirt is blowing the topsoil is blowing don't you think he should be putting in more corn? Now Abby in your experience what are in, in an instance like that, let's say, for instance, whether you have potatoes or dryable beans, because with dryable beans, there's not a lot of organic matter. What, what in your experience, are the best crops if you want to try and put as much organic matter back into the soil? That's that's a great question. And, and honestly, when I'm looking at organic matter additions to the soil, I'm not looking at what's growing above ground, but rather the root structure on those plants below ground, because that's what's going to actually build the organic matter. 
the stuff on the top, when you lay that residue down, that's what protects the soil, but it's the, the roots that actually will turn over and, and create and build that organic matter in that system. So, so anything that has a really extensive root system, like corn does have a great root system and it goes deep into the soil. So it can build organic matter in those, in those areas. Uh, if we look at edible beans, they don't have a great root structure. So they're going to be a little bit less uh, able to, to build up the, the carbon or the organic matter in that soil. Uh, but we also have to look at what is that plant made of. So those legumes, you know, the dry beans, the soybeans, they have a lot of nitrogen. So those microbes, man, they go after that right away because that's like the the shrimp at the buffet. You know, that's <laughs> the stuff they want to eat. Yeah. And then, you know, the corn has a little bit less nitrogen, so it doesn't help those microbes build their cells. So, so they kind of leave it there, and that's what helps accumulate in the soil. What, in your experience, are the better cover crops if you want to try and put if you, you know, and again, the cover crops, obviously it's a shorter growing season for the cover crops because they're usually not put in until the one crop is harvested or right before they're harvested and they don't have a long growing season to build that. Like you say, the root system, and that's kind of what you're mostly concerned about. But what in this area all the way, let's say our footprint is from uh, Mile City, Montana to Janesville, Wisconsin. I mean, what cover crops would help us accomplish that? Um, you know, they have these categories of cover crops called soil builders, right? And that's what they're talking about is building organic matter and building up the soil structure. And, and typically grasses are going to be the best. So oats, barley, wheat, uh, rye, anything, sorghum, Sudan, millets, those are all going to help build up that soil structure and add organic matter. So so those would be the ones you'd go for if you wanted that to increase. Steve, I was listening to Scott, Scott Bachmeyer's show on KFOR here a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about turnips for uh, cover crop because it's the mule deer like it so that'd be and a good i one. <laughs> and 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 i and i have to admit that i took some of my or i borrowed or used or or, or confiscated some of my brother's uh, cover crop that he needed to use for some prevent plant and i used that for my food plots in uh, west central minnesota and, and up here by 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 fargo and so it works really well to use some of those cover crops for, for wildlife uh, enhancement. We're going to talk more about that, too, when we come back for the last segment of today's show. Folks, you're listening to America's Land Auctioneer. You can reach us at info at pifers.com or go to Pfeiffer's website, www.pifers.com, or call us at 877-700-4099. Again, you're listening to America's Land Auctioneer. We'll be right back after this break. Been nobody going to do no 35, and I have... Sold it to you right there. Good bird. Just great. Bye. I'm going to bid on here now. $50,000 bid now. $25 bid. $30,000. I'm going to bid on $30,000 here now. $30,000 bid now. $5,000. Welcome back to America's Land Auctioneer. Glad you joined us for the last segment today. I'm Kevin Pfeiffer, America's Land Auctioneer. My guest today is Steve Link, the broker at Pfeiffer's Auction and Realty and Pfeiffer's Land Management. You can reach Steve at info at Pfeiffer's.com or go to Pfeiffer's website, www.pfeiffers.com. Our other guest is Abby Wick with North Dakota State University, the Extension Service Associate Professor and Soil Scientist. This last segment, we're going to just touch on a variety of different things. Just recently, within the last month or so, there was an article uh, by Dan Charles. He interviewed some soil scientists throughout the country. And the result of this study that he was quoting, Abby, was there was new evidence showing fertile soil basically is gone or it's it either blew away or it something happened to it, but it's gone in a lot of mid, Midwestern farms. Uh, and basically in the article, it said that most of the fertile soil uh, 
is entirely gone from a third of all the land that's been devoted to growing crops in the upper Midwest. So somewhat of a controversial uh, subject and study, but Abby, what is your take on that? Uh, You know, I I think there has been erosion, right? I think we can all agree that as we leave soils exposed, that especially here in the Northern Plains, that, that, that they're very susceptible to wind erosion, right? So we can lose soils by wind erosion. Maybe in some of those other locations, you know, water erosion is more prevalent. You get the gullies and the things like that forming in the field. Um, You know, I I think that, you know, as we look forward, sometimes I don't like to think about the doom and gloom. I like to figure out what we're going to do in the future and how we're going to protect that soil, which is a farmer's number one investment. I'm, you know, is what I consider the soil on their farm. And so how are we going to protect that for the future and maybe rebuild, rebuild it as much as we can? You know, and there are a lot of strategies out there that we talked about earlier to improve the soil health. And obviously, we've seen this manifestation of, you know, we've gone from basically 100% tillage in this country now to minimum till or no till. And as as you see farmers and producers adapt those practices, are you seeing significant improvements in soil health? I think so. I, you know, each farmer I work with, I always ask him, what is your goal for this piece? You know, and, and what are your, is it, is you have too much water? Do you need, you know, do you need to manage that? Do you have too much erosion? You're concerned about losing topsoil. Uh, do you have weed pressures that you want to manage? And we, we figure out what is their primary or, or top two or three goals for that piece. And then we stack the approaches to make it work. So, um, so sometimes, you know, it's, it's including a cover crop. Sometimes it's reducing tillage. Uh, sometimes it's a combination of tools to, you know, including tile drainage or surface drainage and, we try to get those, you know, when we have that combination of tools that's working to achieve their goal, then I think we're seeing some of that success. You know, Steve, earlier, Abby was saying that, you know, one of the best ways to get that organic matter back into the soil is through the root system, and a lot of grasses will do that. So in our business where we are selling CRP land, Conservation Reserve Program land, you know, a lot of that's coming out of the program or it's up for renewal or, or, or you know, you can extend it totally renew it or whatever it might be in that program. In your experience, Steve, do you think it's best now with the farming practices that we have that, you know, maybe that land can come out of CRP or should it stay in CRP and just extend the contract if you can? What are your thoughts on that? That's, that's, that's a good question because I think it's a case by case study because I can tell you a story about last week when, or three weeks ago, when I was driving out in Western North Dakota and the winds were howling and they were blowing. I was driving between Watford City and Belfield and there was enclosed trailers tipping over and things like that. But the only places that I couldn't see because of dust were the roads, right? Where the roads met, the, the east-west roads met and they were blowing, but the rest of the place there was cover crop on there and it wasn't eroding near like it would be if it was plowed. And so, you know, your question about the CRP, um, I like to look at that as a case-by-case scenario, look at what it could produce if it was out of CRP. But there might be other cir- circumstances too. If you're a hunter buyer or hunter owner, you may want to keep it in CRP for that habitat. But CRP grasses and native grasses are a great way to build that organic matter. And so there might be an opportunity in some cases where when that comes out of CRP, it might be a good good production property. Or Another strategy would be if you can work it out with the FSA office in whatever county you own the land, you could maybe 
keep part of it in CRP and you could put the other back into cropping. So then you have the crop rotation and you also have food for the wildlife uh, rather than just putting in food plots. But maybe you have a quarter of land, you put 80 into cropping, keep 80 into CRP, whatever. Uh, you could have that strategy. Yeah, the, the old saying, a farm, farm, farm the best and, and rest, rest the rest, right? Mm-hmm. You can put the rest in conservation. You know, I think that's always an interesting strategy because they're back in the 80s when CRP came into existence and it came in pretty much the same time Swamp Buster did. There were some counties in North Dakota, Kidder County and Nelson County. Within one year, they maximized the percent of acres that you could have in. At that time, it was 25 percent. So you think about those two counties, 25 percent of all their agricultural producing land, not grazing land, cropland was put back was put into the crp program yeah and i really think it's really important to work with a land manager that understands that understands the programs there's programs on the converse side too that if you work with a young farmer that they can get extra uh crp income from working with a beginning farmer to break that up and you know and that's a question i wanted to ask you abby too with some of this some of these programs that they have out there for conservation do you do you work with some of that do you give suggestions on 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 different conservation programs that can help subsidize some of your soil health um you know i don't give too much advice on it because i don't know all the the details of it but i do know there are some up-and-coming programs like through pheasants forever um they have a new program where you can put grasses on some of those areas that maybe you would put into crp but but you can actually cut it and manage it which i think in a lot of ways really is nice it keeps those grasses growing keeps them rejuvenated but um so yeah there's some really great programs out there for for that kind of thing i know i was talking to a producer down in south central north dakota and he was just ecstatic after he got to work I think it was with you and, and changed some of his practices. And he was so tired of putting that crop in in certain areas and he was never getting a crop back out of it. He was never harvesting. It was just year after year. And so he, he changed his practices and changed the, the, the way that he was doing that. And he was, it was a weight lifted off his shoulders not to keep redoing the same mistakes year after year. Well, yeah, I think farmers are perfectionists, right? They want to look at their field. And they want it to be the most productive across the entire field. And and so when you, when you as a, as a consultant, I work with in the Jamestown area, he says when you fire those acres that you just know aren't producing, it's like the guy that shows up to work that never gives you anything but collects his paycheck on Friday, right? You, mm-hmm. you, you have to find a job for those acres or that person. And so that's what I think that's a great approach. I like that line, fire those acres. That's a good line. I like that. You know, and the other thing is, too, you know, input costs, they don't discriminate against good good land and bad land. I mean, the costs are the same. When you think about it, you know, your fertilizer costs, your petroleum costs, those types of things. So, again, like we said earlier, there's really no future in marginal or poor land. Sometimes you can improve it like we've talked about. So, you know, this whole deal with soil health, it, it's probably one of the most important topics that we're going to probably ever encounter when it comes to, you know, being a profitable farmer or rancher. But, Steve, uh, you know, as we get ready to wind down the final segment here today, you know, what would you rank diversity of soil right up there with it too? not just the productivity but the diversity of that soil yeah and that's a that's that's a good point because i yeah i live outside of castleton and you look at the soils profile there and a lot of times you can find quarters with only one or two soils versus some other areas that have have highly diverse soils and it, it, there's good and bad with that that sword cuts cuts both ways right so it, it's easier to maybe uniform your practices and how you farm when it's got a si- single soil versus multiple soils but then on the other hand you're really subject to if it's too much water your whole field's going to react the same way and so i i, I think it's a two two uh two two-sided story there 
Well, folks, we could talk about this subject for hours on end. I want to thank Abby Wick. Abby, thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to have somebody from North Dakota State University on the show. I appreciate it. Steve Link, thank you for being here today. Yeah, and it's fun to have somebody smarter than me in the room with Abby here, right? Well, it's more fun for me to have two people that are smarter than me in the room today, so I appreciate it. Folks, you've been listening to America's Land Auctioneer. I want to thank you for joining us today. If you have any questions or comments, you can go to info at pifers.com. Or go to our website if you want to look up Steve Link, the broker for Pifers. Go to pifers.com or call 877-700-4099. Folks, we'll look forward to being with you next week.